Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. The great thing about the iPad is it's versatile and being a writing coach is a job that demands versatility, as I just described. So what do I mean? I start talking to somebody who's insecure about their work and I've got the iPad on my lap with the Apple Pencil and they barely know I'm taking notes. Or I have a questionnaire that I want them to fill out and I just hand them the iPad and the pencil and say, just check the boxes you think apply to you. And that's a very comfortable experience for them. Then they want me to read their script. I put the iPad in the stand, I have my keyboard and I'm into full-fledged reading. I can annotate with the pencil or I can annotate the way that you might in Apple Pages or in PDF Expert, all depending upon what format they gave me. It turns from a writing machine into a coaching machine and roll back and watch some video on it if I want them to see a scene that their writing has reminded me of. Now, you could do a lot of these things with a desktop, but it always involves you gathering around the machine. And the iPad doesn't make you do that. Welcome back to iPad Pros. Today on the podcast is Academy Award-nominated writer and writing coach, Roger Shulman. Roger was nominated for an Oscar for his work on the hit animated comedy Shrek. He's also written a number of sequels for Disney, including The Fox and the Hound 2, Bambi 2, Mulan 2, The Jungle Book 2, as well as Balto. He also co-created, wrote, and produced the sitcom Jonas. Roger is also a writing coach. You can find more info about that over at thewritingcoach.com. As you can see in the episode title, this is just the first part of a two-part interview with Roger. In this first part, we dive into why he made the switch to the iPad Pro, his work in general, his workflows for researching and writing, and a bit on website creation from iOS. In the next episode, we deep dive into some apps I'd never really heard of and was blown away with when looking into their app store listings. As a reminder, if you want to support the podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash iPadPros. Every dollar is of huge help and greatly appreciated. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Each review is immensely helpful, signaling to Apple's algorithms to show the show higher in search, helping others discover the show. Without further ado, here's part one of the interview I did with Roger Shulman. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Thanks. Can you first introduce yourself and the work you do? Sure. I'm Roger Shulman. I'm a writer for movies and television or, you know, whatever television is today. A lot of my work has been in animation, and I've also worked in the sitcom business quite a lot. In addition to my writing, I now run my own online and face-to-face business coaching writers and aspiring writers. But that's whether they be screenwriters or novelists or copywriters for advertising or marketing or web designers, any kind of writing. And I also write and deliver online courses, mostly for LinkedIn learning. And what inspired you? You recently made the switch to the iPad Pro, moving over to the iPad Pro. What inspired you to make that switch? I think you were on the Mac prior to that. Yes, and I still have my MacBook Pro. It was a confluence of a few different things. I wanted to upgrade my technology 
but I couldn't justify spending, you know, like $2,500 on the kind of MacBook Pro I would want. And so I was looking at the latest version of the big iPad Pro. Between the hardware and the software, I felt it was the first or second generation of an earnest effort to create a real content creation device. That was always the debate over the iPad, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and you make it with it. I thought it was beautiful. And since I spend so much time at a screen, that's important. I liked the idea of an operating system that presented me with one thing to do at a time instead of what I think is now an outmoded model of multitasking. I pretty much think has been debunked. On top of all of that, although it's not a cheap item, it's it's cheaper. It's substantially cheaper if it does the job than a, a notebook. So that was the first time I thought this might actually be able to be my number one machine. So I got it. Has it lived up to being able to do all the work you're needing to do to run your coaching business and write scripts? There's two answers to that question. One is yes, because I get 99% of what I need to get done on the iPad. And then the other answer isn't no, it's way more than yes, because I get almost everything I need to get done. And while there are some tasks that are different or a little more convoluted, there's a certain pleasure to them that I haven't experienced for many years of being a real geek. The iPad kind of reignited that magical feeling in me that made me just delighted that I was sitting down to it. And what about it? Is it is it the hardware or is it the way the operating system works or applications that are not on the Mac? It's hard to translate into words. First of all, there's probably a certain part of it that is that my expectations were relatively low. I've read and heard so many debates about whether the iPad Pro can be your work machine that I knew it was a debate. And I should not go into this thinking, well, this is going to do me as well as a brand new MacBook Pro with uh, no differences. For example, if I had bought a new MacBook Pro and it treated me the way the iPad did, I'd probably be more upset because while there's a certain magic to it, I've had to make accommodations. And if I buy a new notebook for all of that money, which is the kind of product I've been using, I would expect it to be seamless, you know, absolutely flawless. And I knew I was going into a different experience. So the bar was kind of low. That's one thing. And then it's kind of a combination of everything you said. It's not the power per se. It's not the portability. It's not that for the same kind of bang for the buck, I think it's actually cheaper. It's this ineffable kind of combination of all those things. I think of it as the soul of the old machine. This was the first time in years that I felt that old Apple magic. Even though I know they've made some wonderful products, I didn't have that same burst of delighted surprise that I had the first time I saw like a graphical interface on a personal computer. And I thought, why can't the whole world be like this? You know? Yeah. And this thing was so thin, there was no there there. It was magical. And then when I started working with it, there were some frustrations, but they weren't necessarily because there was a problem. You know, it's kind of like you meet a new friend and he speaks French and you speak pretty good French, but you didn't expect it. And you think, you know, I I didn't expect to have to work my French, but it is such a beautiful language. (laughs) And it's a little bit like that. You know, it took me so long 
to justify buying an iPad Pro and so little time to realize how much sooner I should have done it. And since then, it's been getting better. I think they're really on a roll. And every new iteration of the software, I look forward to some really major improvement in my workflow. Yeah. So do you find yourself as a writer just yanking the iPad off of whatever keyboard's on and reading what you've written in a more kind of natural setup rather than like a laptop setup? Yeah. You know, I've worked in front of screens for so many years now. And before that, typewriters. And the first time I finished writing something that I needed to look at again, and I grabbed the whole iPad and pulled it out of its stand and turned it portrait and grabbed my Apple pencil and started looking at it, I had like a chill came over me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah. It's like, I just turned my typewriter into a piece of paper. When that was initially possible, there were still a lot of bumps in the road, but now it really is pretty seamless. I'm learning more and more how many different things this piece of glass can do. I, I just love it. Yeah. So you mentioned a stand earlier. What is your current setup for at home and when you're on the go? Before I was a screenwriter, I was a journalist. I learned to write at any time of the day or night, anywhere. In fact, there's almost a romantic notion about that with reporters. You don't blame your tools. If you have to, you stab your finger with a needle and you write in blood. Yeah. So I used to have quite a flight deck. I had a big 4K screen plugged into my MacBook Pro, and I had this that solar-powered Logitech keyboard and lots of hard drive backup. And I think those things are all kind of withering away. If you do video and big production work, that stuff is essential. But if really what you do for a living is reorganize the words in the dictionary, you could store an awful lot of that in the cloud and on your device with not that much hardware. I tend to use whatever's in front of me. I got this stand that's made by an office furniture company. I haven't seen it anywhere else. It's just this bent steel. It's kind of orange red. It's the kind of stuff they make file cabinets out of. And I like that. And it just holds it at the right angle. And then I have one of those um, wireless Bluetooth Apple keyboards, which is fine with me. Although, you know, lately, it's funny you should ask, I've been thinking about looking into going back to a mechanical wireless keyboard. I started with typewriters and I went up through lots of clickety clickety keyboards and I started to miss all of that noise. But they're expensive and not easy to find. You know, a mechanical right. keyboard that's Bluetooth is actually not a, I don't know, I don't think that's a standard item. Yeah, they're, they're premium specialty keyboards at this point. Yeah, so I don't know if it's worth, you know, that kind of money so that. I hear and feel something a little different. I really don't have a problem with any of the keyboards that Apple's made, like some people do, even though I've used keyboard technology all the way back to, you know, to typewriters. So I have the stand and the keyboard on a little thing called a scooter, which is basically it's this wooden desk that can go up and down. It's at right angles to my regular desk. And that's it, really. It's in very good communication with my iPhone, which was like a whole nother level of magic that I'm really enjoying. And that's it. Now, I'd like to dive into your work a little bit. You've written quite a few animated features. Is there something about that medium that you enjoy writing in over live action? There's a few reasons behind that. The first one is animation doesn't charge you money for location. So if you're writing a scene and you decide, gee, this would be great if we could set it on Mars, then the artist just draws Mars. It's very freeing for the production process. You do that with a live action movie, and they're either talking about building Mars on a soundstage 
or traveling to a desert and augmenting it later. It's all about getting the image correct at a price. And with animation, you're much more free to go anywhere you want. That's number one. Number two, I think animation is the best medium for appealing to a number of demographics simultaneously. If you go to a really well-made, well-written animated film, you've got something for a two-year-old to laugh at, you have something for a 10-year-old to laugh at, and you have something for a 27-year-old to laugh at, all at the same time, if they do it right. And you could do that in live action, of course, but it's a lot harder. And it's also more forced. It doesn't really necessarily feel appropriate. Animation has that distance And so it lets you be a little more fantastic and multi-level. The words can be pointed at one audience, while the physicality can be pointed at another, and the sort of humor can be pointed at yet a third. It's magical to me for that reason. And then the third reason is just very practical. It's where the jobs have been for me. Yeah. Whether it's because I'm good at it or people think I'm good at it, for whatever those reasons may be, that's where I found the work. So, and I have no problem with that. So, I have done a lot of live action and TV in terms of situation comedy, but in terms of features and some TV, it's been almost all animation. Yeah. One of my favorite things when I lived in Los Angeles was we'd go to the script library. There's a library of film scripts. You couldn't check them out. You could only read them on location. It was just fascinating reading through all of those. It's, it is a different kind of medium to kind of learn how to do well. I'm not sure if there's a question there or not. <laughs> no, but I do hear you. And I love how hard it is and how varied different kinds of theatrical writing are. You know, there's writing for the stage, writing for the big screen, writing for smaller screens, writing for the page. In some ways, they're all starting to come together. Superhero movies now are essentially animated. You take something that was a movie and now they're making it into Broadway musicals. It's all swapping around, you know? I find it very interesting. Yeah. For your actual writing of scripts, is there a research phase for most of your projects? And what tools do you use for that? Has that changed moving to the iPad? Yes, yes, and probably no. Okay. (laughs) Because I was a reporter before I was a screenwriter... I'm always kind of research-based, even with things that are completely fictional. I wrote the sequel to Mulan for Disney, and even though the characters were already established, and it takes place hundreds of years ago in ancient China, and it's only a fairy tale, a legend, none of that makes a difference to me. I still read up on China and on the dynasties. In fact, the truth is, I got so interested that when my wife suggested to me that we adopt a baby from China, we did. (laughs) (laughs) So I get very serious about this stuff. The difference between in the old days going to a couple of libraries and running a copy machine and spending an hour on the web is almost miraculous in terms of the research you can get done. But you got to be more and more careful, especially if you are writing nonfiction. And I have written some things that are based on true stories. I'm also currently writing a book that is absolutely historical nonfiction. You got to be real careful, you know, just because something is glowing there on your screen doesn't mean it's true. The tools haven't changed that much for me so far between MacBook Pro and iPad Pro. I'm a big fan of Evernote and One of the reasons I like it so much is because it is so cross-platform. The workflow that I've established with Evernote on my MacBook more or less works for me on the iPad Pro. 
there are a couple of things that the iPad app does better because of drag and drop. And then there's a bunch of things it doesn't do quite as well, which I'm hoping over time will fade away. I did used to use a brilliant app called Notebook by a company called Circus Ponies. Oh, yeah. It was a fantastic piece of software. I loved it so much that I found the guy who wrote it and visited him. (laughs) That comes from my reporter days as well. And sadly, that app was killed by Microsoft OneNote, Mm. which is nowhere near as good a piece of software. Yeah. It was close enough and big enough to just step on it. What's new now, mostly, is the Apple Pencil. I still am a big fan of pen and paper. I'm pretty sure that scientifically they found that there's a different process involved when you write things down manually than when you type them. And I like to use all of those parts of the buffalo, so to speak. I also like the beauty of paper and ink. The Apple Pencil is the first time that I've come across a piece of technology that is almost indistinguishable from writing with a certain kind of pen. And that is just such a constant source of delight for me. I use GoodNotes now. I'm just getting to know it, really. It's a wonderful program, well thought out, getting better all the time. And Evernote doesn't really support the pencil as well as it should. You can take notes in Evernote with the Apple Pencil, but the pencil is smarter than the app. GoodNotes is right up there with it. And I can export my GoodNotes documents to Evernote if I want to. So if I want to keep everything in one place, which I generally do, I don't have to worry that I've got 18 different places to look for stuff. It all can go into Evernote. And then ultimately, my research winds up in Scrivener because it can import just about anything. And I know inside of one file, I've got all of my research and my writing. That's kind of the same, too. I was using it on the Mac platform and now on iPad, even though the feature set is kind of different. It's still a pretty good piece of software. And will you end up using that personalized email address for Evernote to get information into it? I use the email for Evernote all the time. I use a couple of different online services. There's one that specializes in Evernote, which I think is really great. What I'm able to do is if I'm in my email app and I address it to a certain person or from a certain address, it will add in the blind courtesy copy field, the email address of the specific notebook inside of Evernote that I want the email to be stored in. So that's a lot of words, but basically what it means is if I'm talking to my accountant and then I write them an email afterwards, there'll be a copy of that email in my money Evernote notebook automatically. It all happens on its own. So you mentioned Scrivener. Is that your main writing tool or is that just where the research goes? It's my main writing tool for anything that is of a certain length. I think that's probably by design on their part. But the way I would put it is it's not the easiest program to get into in terms of either opening it and getting started or knowing all of its nooks and crannies. It's a big elephant. You don't want to have the elephant come into the room unless you need to really hose the wall down. (laughs) If it's something I'm going to be spending a lot of time with, a screenplay, a book, maybe a movie treatment, I will definitely fire up Scrivener or if it requires a lot of research storage. But if it's something that's just as important but shorter, like an important business letter or maybe just an outline or some brainstorming, I would never do those things in Scrivener. It's very structured it's like a factory. I don't want to use that when I'm really just trying to churn something out with relative speed. 
It's not what I would call transparent. And it has a philosophical base that I'm getting to like more and more, but still have some problems with. On the Mac OS platform, you know, it has these things called scrivenings, which is basically their word for any mini document. You know, it doesn't have to be a chapter of a book. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be a scene in a movie. It can be whatever you want it to be. But the unit of currency in Scrivener is a scrivening. And then you can look at those things separately or you can combine them to look at the whole document. And I didn't exactly get that when I first got the software. And now I get it. And then lo and behold, you go to the iOS version of Scrivener and it doesn't have Scrivening. (laughs) So it's like the whole philosophical trip you took me through to get me to a place where I said, ah, I see the light. I no longer can use when I'm on the same program in iOS. So what happens when it syncs over? Does it translate those scrivenings to some other form of storage? It does give you the individual scrivenings, but it doesn't let you combine and recombine and sort them the same Ah, way. Ah, okay. So if you're on your MacBook, let's say that my scrivening was one scene, a long scene. So I can focus on that scene and I can do the same thing on iOS. But if I then want to just like pick three scrivenings and look at those at the same time, I don't have that freedom. That's basically the difference. The structure is still there, but you can't do all the things with it that you can on the Mac OS platform. They left out quite a few features and they were very smart in how they picked But still, almost everyone, I think, has two or three important features that they rely on that they've had to find workarounds for. Yeah. Now, Final Draft, I've heard, is kind of like the Microsoft Word of the um, script writing um, professionals. Is that something you need to export from Scrivener into Final Draft for sharing with others? Or what's the use of Final Draft in your workflow? Yeah, Final Draft has a couple of uses. And Literature and Latte, the people who make Scrivener, I can tell they know exactly what their mission is. And you either like their mission or you don't. They are the assembly line, the factory, where you really do the heavy lifting of putting together your writing. And then when it comes time to paint it and polish it and put the finishing touches on it and format it ever so correctly, that's not what Scrivener does. You send it to Final Draft, which is fully capable of being a place where you start and finish your draft. You send it there just for final touches to make sure the page breaks are right, to add continues, which means when a character speaks twice in a row without anyone else interrupting him, It says continued the second time his name is there. That's done automatically by Final Draft and any script writing software. Scrivener, for some reason, doesn't know how to do that. Hmm. You just really want to look at the script as a single unified document with a title page before you send it out. It could just be psychological, but sending that out from Scrivener, it just doesn't feel right. It's scary. Yeah. You want to run it through whatever script formatting software you've got. And then when you get to the next draft and the next draft, you have a choice. You can either re-import the whole thing into Scrivener, which understands Final Draft. Oh, good. And if you want, it'll even split it up again into individual Scrivenings, but only on the MacBook. And that makes sense if you're really going to do another real deep dive and do like a real heavy rewrite or... If it's lighter than that, or you just don't feel like dealing with Scrivener anymore, you stay in Final Draft and do your rewrites from there. It all depends upon how you feel. But it does complicate things a little bit, but it also gives you an awful lot more organization and overall power 
over your script. Now, are you able to do your export from Scrivener iOS to Final Draft Mobile, or in that process is the Mac involved at all to make that happen? If you have done a really good job of writing your script in Scrivener in terms of the, the, the technical side of it, if you know that there aren't any stray lines, blank lines at the bottom of any of your pages, there aren't any widows or orphans, your title page is carefully formatted, you can go right from Scrivener iOS to Final Draft Mobile, and you're good to go. And the reason I'm putting in so many caveats is because, not because of Scrivener on iOS, it's because mm -hmm. of Final Draft Mobile. Final Draft Mobile doesn't have all the powers of tweaking that Final Draft on the computer platforms Windows and Mac has. For example, you can run a thing called Format Assistant on Final Draft for Mac OS that will scan your script for any formatting errors and stop you cold and say, there's one extra space before Bill's name on the second page. iOS Final Draft does not do that. If your title page is screwed up, you can do anything you want to with it, with Final Draft on the computer platforms, you know, on the desktop platforms. If it's badly screwed up, it's really hard on iOS to sort of start over again. It seems to remember the formatting errors and you keep typing and it's still giving you that hmm. weird margin, you know? Yeah. And I actually did the Final Draft mobile and Final Draft desktop courses for LinkedIn Learning and lynda.com. So I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I lived it. <laughs> but I do have to say they've made big strides forward in their last couple of iterations. The reason Final Draft is the king of script writing software is basically for the same reason, like you said, that Word is the king of word processing software. They were there first and they took over the market. And just like you might prefer Apple Pages to Microsoft Word, there are script writing programs that I think in some ways do a better job in Final Draft, but there's only one Final Draft, yeah. you know? So you're kind of stuck that way. I think what's gonna happen, and this is not based on any inside knowledge, I just have this feeling that Final Draft is sort of going to transition to being online and there'll be some kind of a lightweight app that will plug into that. But I just get the feeling that the days of $250 software packages may be soon behind us, especially because they were bought by a big company that does a lot more than script writing. Hmm. They do all kinds of post and pre-production. And I think they're going to want to start introducing an integrated online system that will take a movie or a TV show from beginning to end. Kind of like I think Adobe's trying to do. Yeah. They have an application called Story, I think, and it integrates with all their other, you know, creative cloud stuff. I, that's just the feeling. Now, with projects that involve multiple writers, how does the collaboration work, if there is any, or is it each writer does a separate pass as it gets closer and closer to the final script? Well, that question depends upon what the end product is you're talking about. If you're talking about a feature, more often than not, it's a solitary experience, which is not to say that there's only one writer on a movie, because nowadays there's almost never only one writer on a movie. But it's a serial process. There's one guy or woman that does a draft, eventually gets fired, somebody else comes in to fix it, eventually gets fired, and then you rinse and repeat. And for reasons that are more about credit and money than anything else, these people don't even see each other, much less work together. Hmm. Yeah. There are exceptions to that. They have writer's rooms sometimes to sort of bang out a collaborative draft of a movie 
Certain directors or certain studios like to work that way. And it's been going on for a while now. But those are still, I think, the exceptions. Now, TV or the small screen, whatever it happens to be nowadays, it's an entirely different thing. It's almost always collaborative, especially comedies, half-hour shows. Mm -hmm. There's the writer's room where anywhere from, who knows, six to 12 writers will be working at the same time on the same script shouting things out in a room. Hour-long dramas for TV might be a little bit more like features, but even there, there might be rewrites in a room. In terms of the sort of professional world, you're either working by yourself or you're collaborating, but in a room in real time. And the opportunities for long-distance collaboration do occur, but I think they're relatively rare, that it must be people who have a lot of juice and they can just say, I'm going to write where I want to write. And if someone wants to collaborate with me, we can hook up over the Internet or they can come out and see me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stephen King can live wherever he wants. Right. It just so happens it's Maine. The great unwashed masses of Hollywood scribes, they need to be where it's happening. And no one's going to make software allowances for them. They're going to say, if you want to work with the guy, be here in room eight at 10 o'clock. I think that's just the, the way it is. If you do collaborate a lot with a partner in TV, then you're partners all the time mm -hmm. and you're over each other's place or in each other's offices constantly. So there's a lot of talk about collaboration tools in these programs. I often wonder how much of that really gets used. Yeah, because in the writer room, it's a single person that does the updates and additions. Everyone's talking and trying to figure out what the next change should be. Yes, there's something coming out of nearly every orifice in your body <laughs> in a writer's room. It's not pretty. There's one person, they have different titles at different studios and in different productions, but there's a script coordinator who is trying to take it all down at once. And in the old days, they would read it back. Nowadays, there's a big screen at one end of the room and you can all look at it and everyone's pointing at different parts of it and screaming how bad it is. And that person who's doing all of that work suffers it because generally they're aspiring to be one of the people who are pointing and yelling. So that's the system. Yeah. Now, writing comedy, does that translate all to stand-up? Like, are you comfortable, like, doing that kind of, like, jokes? Or how do you come up with funny scripts? If you're talking about situation comedies or TV, if it's not something you're going to the theater to see, if it's on your phone or on your tablet or on your monitor or on your TV, then, yeah, there is a lot of performance art involved. There are very, very good comedy writers who aren't that good at pitching a joke. And there are some very, very good pitchers who aren't very good comedy writers. Mm -hmm. And what you're really looking for is the person who has great skill at both. Then that's a real magician. Everybody has a different style and you can literally get up and start performing if you have an idea for something. Or you can just sit there and talk about it. There's a whiteboard. You might want to draw something. If you're a shrinking violet, you're not going to get much of your work out there if it's a comedy. You've got to be able to open your mouth. If it's a feature, then it's like I was describing earlier. It's probably a somewhat more of a solitary experience. And mm -hmm. you can stay home and write the funniest things you can think of down and hand those in and see if they like it or not. If you're going to pitch a movie, if you have an idea for a movie and you want to try to sell it without having to write it first, then we're right back to what I was saying before. You've got to be able to get up on your feet and make people in the room laugh, even though that's an entirely different skill set 
than actually writing the movie. Yeah. And how often do you know or does it matter who the actor will end up being or actress that's doing the jokes? Uh, are is In some cases, are you writing for that person's style or will a good actor be able to perform the script no matter kind of what? Well, there's actually a lot of questions in the question that you're asking, and I can understand why, because it works in many different directions at once. First of all, it helps to know what kind of an actor you want your character's voice to be. So even if you're not going to get a certain actor, you might suggest one and write to that. But you have to be careful not to actually pin it down to one actor's voice because the odds of you getting the actor you want are next to zero. So, and then there's the whole thing of stars versus actors. You're right, a good actor should be able to perform a multitude of roles. But if you're talking about stars, then their voice becomes part of what you're looking for. Mm. While they're actors as well, if they have that star power, you're willing to craft your writing for them because they're a piece of talent you want associated with what you're writing. It gets complicated. There's this thing called talent attached, where if you can get a specific star interested in what you're doing early in the process, they're called the talent, and you can attach them. So you have a big leg up. You can, in trying to sell the movie, you can talk to the people with the money and say, well, Tom Hanks is interested. And if you're not lying, then there's a much better chance that people will suddenly like you, because that will put some more butts in the seats. Yeah. Now, your coaching business, what's yeah. the process of working with the student and how does the iPad incorporate into you helping them learn? My coaching business is probably where the iPad has done me the most good. I have a website called theridercoach.com and I can be hired to help a client with a particular piece of writing and I do that a lot. But my way into the experience is to coach the writer, not the writing. So I try to find out what the writer's trying to say under the plot points and the characters, because whatever the writer is trying to say is worthwhile and good, even if it's not being executed as well as it might be. So there's a lot of psychology involved, and there is a lot of coaching in the sports sense involved, mm -hmm. where you're trying to get people to blossom and do their best. And then there's a lot of teaching involved, all of these things are going on in the process at the same time. You're trying to create a really positive platform for people to jump off from. Whether they're old pros or aspiring writers, they still have come to you in order to help them get better. The great thing about the iPad is it's versatile and being a writing coach is a job that demands versatility as I just described. So what do I mean? I start talking to somebody who's insecure about their work and I've got the iPad on my lap with the Apple Pencil and they barely know I'm taking notes. Or I have a questionnaire that I want them to fill out and I just hand them the iPad and the pencil and say, just check the boxes you think apply to you. And that's a very comfortable experience for them. Then they want me to read their script. I put the iPad in the stand. I have my keyboard, and I'm into full-fledged reading. I can annotate with the pencil, or I can annotate the way that you might in Apple Pages or in PDF Expert, all depending upon what format they gave me. It turns from a writing machine into a coaching machine, and roll back and watch some video on it if I want them to see a scene that their writing has reminded me of. Now, you can do a lot of these things with a desktop, but it always involves you gathering around the machine. And the iPad 
doesn't make you do that. You pick it up, you move it around, you keep it out of their field of view, you put it right in front of their eyes. It's so versatile. It's like a, a really good leatherman, you know, <laughs> just becomes the tool you need when you need it. So in terms of my coaching, the purchase of the iPad was justified just for that, even though I was really trying to incorporate it into all of my work. It's great. The website for your coaching business, was that created on the iPad? Yes, it was. I didn't build it from scratch, you know. Mm -hmm. I use a service with templates, but I did alter the templates quite a bit. The only complaint I have there is that I use Squarespace right now. Yeah. And they have an app for the iPad, but believe it or not, it's not an iPad app. Huh. It's basically an iPhone app, and you can't look at it landscape. You have to look at it portrait. <laughs> yeah, the only experience I have with their app is their blog app, which it's really useful for adding new blog posts to your Squarespace site, but uh, trying to update it from the app, uh, it's, just, it's not there for that. Yeah, I'm relatively new to the website building business, and I do it to support my real, you know, passion. Uh, no one will ever pay me to create a website in terms of the nuts and bolts of it. Although I have helped people get their message across better. That's not coding or style sheets or anything like that. So I was relying on a company that had a lot of very good templates. And, you know, it's like a lot of other businesses. Once you're in, you're in. Mm -hmm. So I've yeah. created a couple of websites through Squarespace and it's not bad. I would need a lot of momentum behind me to say, I've got to move somewhere else, even if somewhere else is a little better. Right. I don't know much about WordPress or Wix or any of the other companies that offer this kind of stuff. But I can do basically what I need to do on my iPad with the website. You did put your finger on one of the places where if I've got like major stuff to do, I'm going to have a, I don't know, a whole new block of pages or I want to redesign it's going to be real tough to use the Squarespace app to get that done. You're really just going to have to walk over to the mat. Yeah, even their website on Safari is not the most touch-friendly. I've done it before, and uh, yeah, sometimes I do remote into my Mac Mini to do some Squarespace changes. Yeah, the nice thing about them is it never looks bad. I think if they were smart, that would be their tagline. Squarespace, it never looks bad. Thanks for listening to this episode of iPad Pros. You can find the show notes over at iPadPros.net. You can send your feedback to me at iPadProsPodcast.gmail.com. If you email a voice memo, I'd be happy to include your audio in a future episode. I'm on Twitter at iPadProsPodcast. And as mentioned at the top of the show, if you haven't had a chance to review the show on Apple Podcasts, I highly encourage you to do so. Every review helps send signals to promote the podcast more in search and helps other people discover the show. Thank you for your time and attention today. Talk to everyone again real soon.